0: CHAPTER Thirty Four: YOUNG FOLKS' HISTORY OF THE AMERICAN REVOLUTION. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com YOUNG FOLKS' HISTORY OF THE AMERICAN REVOLUTION BY EVERETT TOMLINSON WASHINGTON'S MARCH AND ARNOLD'S RAID It is necessary, in order to understand the events which now swiftly followed, to turn to the north and follow the plans and movements of Washington. Doubtless no one had chafed more over the policy of long delay which he had been following than did Washington himself, but if one cannot act wisely, it is better not to act at all. But there was a method in all of the great commander's work, and as we know, he had long since decided that his one and only hope lay in tiring out the British rather than in conquering them in open battle unless some rare opportunity should prevent itself at trenton and princeton he had indeed been wonderfully successful but the opportunity presented there had not been repeated and his troops practically had been defeated in every other battle into which he had led them but no whig who chafed over the enforced idleness of the army could have regretted the delay more than did washington who whatever else he was was certainly a man that loved action, and what he suffered under the complainings of the people, none can ever know. In the spring of 1781, however, he began to think that some decisive action might be had in the immediate future, and at Weathersfield, Connecticut, he had had a personal interview with Rochambeau, in which it was decided to make an attack upon New York, which, if it should do nothing more, might at least induce Clinton to send for a part of the army that was then with Cornwallis and so make the contest then going on in South Carolina and the surrounding region a little more easy for the sadly beset Green and others. The French and the English were having a struggle at this time, as we have already learned, and there had been much fighting going on among the West Indies. The plan now was for de Grasse, who was in command of the French fleet in the West Indies, to come to the aid of the combined armies in America. About the middle of August, word came from de Grasse that he would bring his fleet as far north as the Chesapeake, but the armies, if they wanted to work with him, must come to him rather than expect him to come to them, for he must return to the West Indies very soon. Washington had now also received word from Virginia that Cornwallis had practically bottled himself up at Yorktown, and the great commander suddenly decided to take his combined army to that very place, and fight Cornwallis before aid could come to that general. The French troops were now with Washington, and if only Clinton with his troops could be kept in New York, and the Americans could make their way to Virginia before aid could be brought to Cornwallis, there was every prospect that no one would longer have an opportunity to declare that the army was doing anything but waiting. How to hold Clinton's army in New York was the first problem to be solved. This had to be accomplished by stealth, and several methods were employed among them being the old and common trick of having intercepted letters reached Sir Henry. One of the bearers of these letters was a young Baptist preacher named Montani, who was a faithful soldier in Washington's army on the Hudson. After having made careful inquiries as to the man, Washington summoned the young preacher into his presence, and told him he desired him to have some despatches sewed inside the lining of his coat, and bade him go through the Ramapo Pass to carry them to Morristown. This Ramapo Pass was a long, narrow defile among the Jersey hills, having a broad, swift running brook on the one side and steep cliffs on the other side of the roadway that led through it. At this time it was considered a very dangerous spot, as the cowboys made it a place where they carried out many of their evil deeds. Young Montany was aware of this, and though he readily accepted the duty to which Washington called him, he nevertheless ventured to suggest that he was familiar with the entire region and could easily go to Morristown across the country, and so avoid the peril of capture at the Ramapo Pass. In pretended anger, Washington stamped his foot and declared that the duty of a young man was to obey, not to suggest plans to his superiors. So there was nothing else to be done. A gang of cowboys did seize the preacher when he entered the defile, just as he had feared and as Washington had hoped, and he was carried to New York and shut up in the old Sugar House prison of course the concealed letters meanwhile had been found and taken to sir henry clinton mr montigny when he had found himself a prisoner in the foul sugar house naturally was indignant at washington but a day or two afterward when he was shown a copy of rivington's gazette in which a long account of his capture was given and it was also declared that from the letters taken on his person sir henry had learned of the plan of washington and rochambeau to attack new york at once and that the British general was doing all in his power to prepare his men and the city to withstand the proposed attack. Then he saw it in all its true light, and probably admired his commander as much as just before he had murmured at him. The American army now moved swiftly. By various routes, different parts advanced to Trenton, the French soldiers marching by way of Newark, Elizabethtown, and Perth Amboy. At the last-named place they built ovens, and pretended to make plans to attack Staten Island and New York, all of which so completely deceived the British that the first inkling they had of what Washington was planning to do came when the Allied armies were already across the Delaware, and marching rapidly towards Elk or Elkton. It was only then that the American soldiers themselves understood what was going on, for the utmost secrecy had been maintained from the start, but the elation of the most of the men was great when the truth became known. The people, too, of the country through which they were advancing, now aware of the project, shared in the enthusiasm and cheered the soldiers and leaders and shouted, Long live Washington, as the long line of hardy and determined men passed their homes. The consternation of Sir Henry Clinton, when at last he became aware of what the old fox Washington was doing, was great. He was too far away to be pursued, and the British fleet from the West Indies had not yet come so he could not go to the aid of Cornwallis by sea. When the American army arrived at the head of elk, Washington, together with Knox, Rochambeau, and a few others, hastened to Virginia, arriving at Williamsburg on the 14th of September, and immediately began to form their plans with an anxiety words cannot picture. So many things were likely to happen to spoil it all. On the 25th of September, the soldiers, brought by boats from the head of elk, arrived. And the most serious part of the work began. Though Sir Henry Clinton had not been able to do anything to aid Cornwallis directly, he did try to aid him indirectly. If something could be done to cause Washington to turn back or to feel that his presence was absolutely necessary in the North, it might result in being of as great a help to his perplexed comrade in arms as if he himself had come to Yorktown with large reinforcements. The plan he adopted was a cruel one and probably did as much to increase the bitterness of the Americans as any one event of the entire war. Benedict Arnold had come north after Cornwallis arrived in Virginia, and Clinton's plan now was to send him with a force against New London, Connecticut, the very region in which the trader's boyhood had been passed, for he had been born in Norwich, January 3, 1740, and there had learned to be an apothecary. So bright and able was he, That the men under whom he trained gave him the money, two thousand dollars, with which to begin business for himself. In seventeen sixty three, however, he went to New Haven and carried on the business of apothecary and bookseller in that place. In his boyhood, he was known as one who never took a dare, was athletic and very bright, but he was as cruel as he was quick witted. After his treachery, there was no part of the country where harsher words were spoken of him than the region where he had been known many years before, and the resentment in Arnold's heart made the expedition upon which Sir Henry Clinton sent him, one into which he could enter with all his might, mind, and strength. It was the morning of september sixth, seventeen eighty one, when the startled people of New London beheld the fleet of twenty four sail of the enemy bearing down the harbour. In two divisions the invaders landed, Colonel Eyre having command of the force on the Groton side and Benedict Arnold himself being the leader of the force on the New London side. In each division there were about eight hundred men, Tories or Hessians for the most part, and from their own experiences and feelings, the most ready of all to do cruel and evil deeds. The few militia at New London at first tried to make a stand against their foes, but soon aware that they could do nothing, they speedily abandoned Fort Trumbull, on the New London side of the Thames, and crossed over to the Groton side to assist Colonel Ledyard in trying to hold Fort Griswold, which was on that side of the river. Arnold was therefore left free to vent his ill will on his old-time friends. Houses, stores, the vessels at the wharves, the entire town, were soon in flames, and it is said that Arnold watched it rejoicing. The people were not permitted to save even their furniture, and the redcoats plundered and pillaged on every side altogether it is said that thirty-one stores sixty-five houses eighteen shops the courthouse jail churches and many other buildings were destroyed but alarm guns and the words of couriers were summoning the angry people of the region and soon these became so numerous that arnold deemed it wise to return to the boats though a number of his followers were shot on the way Arnold had ordered Colonel Eyre to seize Fort Griswold, so that any vessels trying to go up the river, fifteen did succeed in escaping, might be seized or destroyed. When Eyre demanded the surrender of the fort, Colonel Ledyard refused, and then followed one of the most desperate struggles of the entire war. With guns, spears, and clubs, the little garrison kept off the attacking force of eight hundred. The British colonel fell and the Major, as he tried to enter the fort, was pierced by a spear. It is said a Negro did the deed. Two officers and forty-six privates of the British had been killed, and eight officers and 139 men wounded, when at last Colonel Ledyard decided that the only hope for his brave little garrison was in surrendering. "'Who commands this garrison?' shouted Major Bromfield, a Tory from New Jersey, as he led the Redcoats into the fort. "'I did, sir, but you do now,' replied Colonel Edyard, as he held forth his sword. The enraged Tory snatched the sword and ran it through the body of the brave man who had just surrendered. His example was instantly followed by his men, and before the massacre had been completed, seventy of the brave Americans had been killed and thirty-five terribly wounded, and all this was after they had surrendered.' Not satisfied with even the murders they had committed, the vile Tories and Hessians took some of the wounded prisoners, and placing them in a cart at the brow of the hill, gave the cart a push, and sent it heading down the steep side toward the river. Above the noise of the conflagration, for the little place was set on fire, rose the cries of the suffering men. Not even a drink of water was given them. Such brutality... Such inhuman cruelty was not exceeded elsewhere, and it was all due to the intense hatred which the Tories had come to have for their former friends and comrades. In the night, the traitor commander, with his force and forty prisoners, sailed back to New York, but his cruel raid had not served to stop Washington or to cause the great commander to turn aside from the one purpose upon which he had now started and in which he was so terribly in earnest the cutting off and capture or defeat of the British regulars with Lord Cornwallis at Yorktown, in Virginia. Not even the threats Clinton made to invade New Jersey with his army, or to go up the Hudson against West Point, had any effect now. Though if the British general had acted as he had threatened to do, doubtless he would have inflicted great damage upon the American cause. But he, too, had his troubles. End of Chapter 34